Welcome to Project Keto Podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Hewitt, and today is a very special episode because we have a guest. We have Dr. David G. Harper, who is the author of The Bio Diet. This is a book that I've been reading for the past couple of weeks, and I love it for a couple of reasons. Main reason is that it gives a lot of history of why low-fat diets have even come about and where that even came from, but also the science behind what happens to your body when you're fueling off of fat or you're fueling off of sugar and carbs. And that's what we're going to be talking about mainly today. So much of this podcast in the past has been about implementing a keto diet and the practical tips and how to actually eat this way. But let's take a step back today and focus on our bodies and what's actually happening when we make different types of food choices. And then starting on Monday, we are jumping right into season four of the podcast, which is back to the practical tips. And the theme of season four is going to be the biggest keto mistakes. So I'll spoil the good news, but week one is going to be all about eating dairy. So if you have been worried about eating dairy or you eat a lot of dairy or you don't know if you should be eating dairy or you can't quit dairy, then that episode is going to answer a lot of your questions. So mark your calendars starting on Monday. Season four begins and it is going to be great. But let's jump right back into this bonus episode for today with Dr. David G. Harper. So David, welcome to the show. Oh, hi Madeline, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, greeting you from uh, almost sunny Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. <laughs> oh, fun. And you're in Minnesota, are you? Yes, I'm in Minneapolis, and I was oh, just in Vancouver uh, about four months ago. It's beautiful there. It is a very nice place to live, I have to say, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. And, uh, and by the way, I've been, uh, I, I just want your listeners to know I've been uh, listening to your uh, the Project Keto podcast, uh, listen to a number of the episodes from each of the years, and, and it's really, really great. It's really great advice for, for your listeners, really great practical advice, and I love the fact that you have these different themes for the different years, so I'm really honored to be here, uh, to be here chatting with you today. Well, thank you so much. We're really excited to have you here, too. Uh, I normally don't do interviews on this podcast, so this is kind of a, a special situation, and Aww. I chose to do it because I love your book so much, and I really think people should be reading this. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, I hope it provides a kind of practical guide for people that are uh, you know, new to ketogenic diets or even those that have adopted them and you know, have some questions or, or even those that are very experienced. I've been on a ketogenic diet for uh, seven and a half years now with my wife, uh, who's the co-author, Dale Drury. And um, yeah, I think there's a, I try to put as much of everything in there in a, in a manner that's kind of, you know, approachable and engaging and, and maybe even a little entertaining. So I hope people enjoy it. Yeah, I hope so too. And I would like to start the show today by just reading a little bit of your bio out of the book. Um, I think you have such an impressive background and I want everybody to know where you are coming from. Dr. Harper is an associate professor of kinesiology at the University of the Fraser Valley and a visiting scientist at the BC Cancer Research Center, Terry Fox Laboratory. He holds a PhD from the University of British Columbia and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in comparative physiology at the University of Cambridge. He is on the Scientific Advisory Board of Canadian Clinicians for Therapeutic Nutrition and is a member of the Institute for Personalized Therapeutic Nutrition. 
So one more time, welcome to the show, David. <laughs> Just so always happy little, to have you. Always a little embarrassed by that stuff, but I guess if you live long enough, you, <laughs> you develop some accomplishments. So yeah, this is something that um, nutrition research I turned to probably about 10 years ago, and I've really kind of um, just absolutely become absorbed in the, in the area. It's very, very interesting. It's very even controversial. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but the potential to help people both prevent disease or, or treat chronic disease, it's just, it's just fantastic. And I just, I'm really doing this to try and spread the word and to, to help people understand um, how a food first approach to health is really important. Absolutely. So you said you've been doing this work for about 10 years. How did you get interested or even get started learning about low carb diets in the first place? Oh, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting story. I used to have a, a radio show on, on it's called um, Cooperative Radio here. It's sort of like NPR in the United States. And it was called uh, Think for Yourself. It was a show about um, critical reasoning and, and, and healthy skepticism. And we, we had a guest on to discuss whether uh, losing weight and maintaining weight loss was mostly about diet or mostly about exercise. And, and uh, being a kinesiology professor, I took the exercise side and and, uh, and our guest was Dr. Richard Mathias, who is um, a physician and from the School of Public Health at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver. And, and he had been studying uh, indigenous diets, uh, First Nations diets, uh, in particular those in the north. And, and, um, and those diets are very ketogenic. Uh, they can be 70 to 90% of their calories from saturated fats from animals and like seals and so on. Um, and uh, we started the show, we were sort of talking about, um, you know, obesity and what was causing that. And he asked me, well, Dave, what do you think is the cause of obesity? And you have to remember, this was more than 10 years ago, and, and I had been teaching, you know, the, the kind of standard wisdom in the West about what caused obesity. I said, well, it's this very complex, multifactorial issue that has genetic components and metabolic components and psychosocial components. I sort of went on for a while. <laughs> he was very patient. And he, he sort of waited until I finished. He said, Dave, it's much simpler than that. It's your body's physiological response to excess carbohydrate in the diet. And I, I Madeline, I was just, I, we had what we called dead air. I just, I, I couldn't say anything. I was speechless. And I, because in my head, because remember I've been teaching anatomy and physiology and pathology for, and contemporary health for almost 30 years at that point. And, and I, um, I was just sort of floored. And I just thought, wow, actually, that makes perfect sense. And it can't possibly be that simple. So, um, you know, I thank him after the show. We've kept in touch ever since. And he just sort of took me down the rabbit hole. And then I just spent two years looking for the um, primary research that supported the conventional wisdom that saturated fat is bad for your heart and that a low-fat diet was a healthy diet. And Madeline, I, I'm a trained scientist. Uh, I know how to do research. I spent two years looking for the evidence. And it's just not there. There's just there's no robust evidence. There's all kinds of these epidemiological, correlational, observational studies, but nothing that shows any cause-effect relationship there. And, and then I did realize on the other side, too, that the model uh, of uh, high-carbohydrate diet uh, creating um, overweight and obesity and, and then they associate chronic disease um, was actually really, really uh, interesting and really valid. And um, it, it goes along with the sort of hormonal theory of obesity that um, insulin resistance is involved. And man, if you look for the, for the supporting science there, it's really good. Like the, the, the top researchers at the top universities in the world are, are, are now looking at this because of the potential to prevent disease and treat disease. So, so uh, I thank uh, Dr. Matthias for taking me down the rabbit hole. Um, I then started working with uh, uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Jerry Crystal at the BC Cancer Research Center. Uh, we're working on um, looking at the effects of the therapeutic benefits of ketogenic diets for, for uh, people with cancer. 
Um, and for the last year and a half or so, we've teamed up with Jeff Folick's uh, team. I'm sure you know that name. Uh, Jeff's at the Ohio State University, and he's got an amazing team there. And we're, we're involved in a three-year study looking at the therapeutic benefits of ketogenic diets for women with metastatic breast cancer. And, and the preliminary results there were very, very promising. So it's been a very exciting journey. And uh, I've also adopted a ketogenic diet. I devised my own, which I call the bio diet. Um, and, uh, and my wife and I have been, you know, keto for more than seven years, seven and a half years since the first Obama administration, I like to say, <laughs> so that goes a ways back. And, uh, and it's been, uh, it's been interesting, you know, we, we continue to enjoy great health and, and, uh, really vibrant lives. And, and I thank the diet for, for a lot of that. So before you had that radio interview, were you eating pretty much a low fat diet? Yeah. Yeah. I was in fact a co-host of that. So I was doing the interview and, and, uh, yeah, I was, I called the conventional wisdom or the standard Western diet. And that's what I've been teaching for 30 years. So one of the things I had to do in the book was like apologize to all these students I've had uh, saying, listen, you know, I taught you all this stuff and you know, I have to apologize one because I, I was wrong. I told you the wrong stuff, but two, that's not practicing good science because a good scientist should look at the primary research and see what the evidence is for what you're saying. And I've been teaching stuff that, you know, I, to, in my defense, you know, governments are telling us this and the health organizations were telling us low fat, low fat, low fat for the last 30 or 40 years. And, you know, really, um, that was just always a hypothesis first put forward by Ansel Keys back in the 60s, never proven. But what we did, um, sadly, was we did this giant experiment on, you know, 400 million North Americans to see what would happen if we told everybody to eat a high carb diet. And, and the results are in. We have you know, epidemic rates of obesity and associated chronic disease, 75% of, of Americans are now overweight or obese. Um, you know, half of Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic, and, and this is largely caused by diet. And, and so, like, the great news is you can, you can fix it by just all, uh, changing your diet, and it, it fixes itself pretty quickly. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Where did the whole concept of a low-fat low diet even come from? You touched on that in your book, and I just think you give such a good explanation of that. Yeah, uh, thanks. And, and it, it, again, it came from Ansel Keys and, and uh, some of his uh, Mark Hegstead and so on. Ansel Keys at University of Minnesota, actually, and Ansel Key, uh, uh, Mark Hegstead was at Harvard. And, and they just sort of came up with this, you know, it, it, it's what we call a specious argument, which it, it sounds right, but it's actually not supported. And, and the argument is that, um, you know, because we look at the cardiovascular system, we can see these uh, atheromas or atherosclerotic plaques, and they have cholesterol and they have fat in them. That that and, and Americans were eating, you know, a high fat diet. It must be that fat that's causing that uh, the deposits of fat in there. It must be high fat in the blood and so on. And um, and that was always a hypothesis called the diet heart or the diet lipid heart hypothesis. And uh, they spent um, two billion dollars in adjusted dollars over thirty years, uh, eight studies, more than six hundred thousand people trying to prove that saturated fats cause cardiovascular disease and, and coronary heart disease, and, and they actually came up empty. And so we've done this. Uh, you know, we're not going to do that experiment again. <laughs> and and um, but the problem is, it's like a meme. You know, that meme is still persistent, and people still think that eating fat makes you fat and that saturated fat causes heart disease. And even though there's no evidence for either of those, um, that, that, that myth is perpetuated. And so that's part of our, our job, Madeline, is we have to re-educate the public and re-educate physicians and re-educate, um, you know, the healthcare system. And, and you know, government's going to be the last to follow suit. They'll wait till the people demand it. But, um, so that's where it all kind of started back in the 50s and 60s. And, and, um, and unfortunately, those folks that had that idea uh, about health 
um, they kind of populated all the funding agencies and that sort of thing. So it's been very, very challenging for any of us looking at ketogenic diets to get public funding for our research. We generally go to private sources. That's starting to change now because the evidence in support of the therapeutic benefits of ketogenic diets is so overwhelming right now that, that finally the agencies are starting to say, okay, this is uh, something we need to investigate more. Yeah, I've noticed that too. It's slowly starting to come out more and more and more in the media and in more public places. Um, but you said something interesting. People think that eating fat makes you fat. That's like probably one of the most popular <laughs> beliefs out there. So if eating fat doesn't make you fat, then can you tell us what does make you fat? Why do people have such a problem with becoming overweight? Right. Well, yeah, eating, you know, I mean, it makes sense. Again, this is one of these specious arguments because it makes sense because fat is twice as dense as or more than twice as dense as uh, per gram uh, in terms of calories as, as carbohydrates or proteins. And so, you know, if you, if you view um, overweight or weight management as a calories in, calories out, uh, that's kind of an old model that also doesn't work. Um, then, then that makes sense. You take the highest energy content food out and, and then you're reducing your calories. But calorie-restricted diets don't work. In fact, they're, they're, they're harmful and, and, they're, and they're counterproductive in the long run because of you know, thrifty genes and, and, and cortisol and so on that we can talk about later. Um, so you don't want to, you can't really sustain a, a calorie-restricted diet anyway because you're not getting enough calories. So what you need to do is have a diet that actually provides calories that are healthy. So yes, people think that eating fat makes you fat because that just, it just sounds right. But in fact, when you eat fat in the absence of carbohydrate, then that fat becomes your primary fuel source for your cells and your cells are burning that fat. So if we look at people on high carb diets and we look at their triglyceride levels, which is actually the fat that's circulating you know, as a potential fuel, um, we see that quite high in people on high carb diets. If we switch people to low carb, particularly ketogenic diets, we see those triglycerides are lowering, that's a sign that your body's actually metabolizing those as its primary fuel. So as you said earlier, you're switching from you know, sugar burning to fat burning. So, so even though you're eating lots of fat, that's your fuel. And, and then in between meals and so on, your body goes to the fat stores and starts drawing on those. So that's why ketogenic diets are so good at helping you reduce that mid-abdominal obesity, which is the most dangerous kind of fat to have, and so good at helping you ma uh, maintain a, a lower weight too. I mean, I, I dropped from about one high 170s to... Uh, the low 140s, and I just had a birthday. I always weigh myself as 148.6 pounds, and so, and that's seven years later. And I, you know, I might go up and down a couple of pounds, but basically, as long as you stay, um, you stay with it, uh, you won't regain that weight. And that's that's actually something that's quite important for people to understand. If you are overweight or obese, and you do get back to a normal weight, whatever you did to get back there, you have to do that for the rest of your life. <laughs> so it better be something that you can sustain, you know? So if you're running triathlons to do that, well, you're not going to be able to <laughs> do that level of output your whole life. Much, much easier to adjust your diet and, and to, to adopt a low carb ketogenic diet to, to help manage that weight, get back to a healthy weight and manage it. Yeah. Sure. So, so it is, it, 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 sorry, I, I didn't quite answer your question, which was how does the high carb diet make you fat? That's, that's actually, again, due to this uh, insulin resistance model and, um, you know, we can look at that uh, a number of different ways, but basically when you eat carbohydrates, you secrete insulin. I know you've, you've talked about this on your show previously, mm -hmm. and that insulin helps you remove um, the sugar from your blood where you don't want to have blood sugar that's too high. That's dangerous. That's essentially what diabetes is if it's chronic. So you want to absorb those into your fat cells and your muscle cells. Now, you know, if you just had a high carb meal and you're being sedentary, like most of us are sitting in the office or whatever, 
the insulin signal there, because when you re- when you have the carbs, then the insulin's released, and the insulin signal, it's kind of like a traffic cop. It'll say, okay, uh, we're not exercising, so just go and sit there in the fat cells, and you'll start putting on fat. If you're doing a little bit of exercise, then I'll say, okay, uh, this, this sugar is coming, let's try and burn that, which is why um, one of the things I recommend after every meal is something that the uh, part Italian, what the Italians called uh, passaggetia, which is, which is a, a, a stroll. Go for a little stroll after, just to, just to help that signaling process. Mm-hmm. But if you chronically overeat carbohydrate, you can have chronically high levels of insulin. And when your insulin levels and your sugar levels are high, then you're always going to be putting that excess fuel in as fat. And so you'll st- just start gaining fat. And I've got this great slide in one of my presentations that shows these, these two mice populations, you know, exactly the same food, exactly the same amount of food, uh, but they gave one group of mice extra insulin every day and they gained uh, 80% more weight than the other mice did. And it's, it's a pretty convincing, although you know, humans aren't mice, but it's a pr- pretty convincing uh, visual example of how insulin is so important in regulating our body weight and, and how excess of insulin can lead to obesity. Yeah, that's so true. So we've been talking a lot about losing weight. And of course, that's a wonderful benefit of doing a low carb diet, like a keto diet or the bio diet or anything like that. But can you tell us a little bit more about other benefits of eating low carb or higher fat? Sure. Well, you know, if you go, um, you know, essentially, there's only three macronutrients, right? You got your you know, proteins, fats and carbohydrates. So if we're asking people to reduce their carbohydrate to um, you know, less than 30% of their total calories, which is about half what's recommended in the standard Western diet. That would be considered low carb, and you're getting into the sort of paleo sub-Mediterranean kind of diet. Um, but if you reduce the carbohydrate as low as possible, generally below about 5% of calories, um, you actually, the, the, the fat that you're going to be burning exclusively um, will start to produce ketones as a byproduct. And, and these ketones, there's three different types, but the main one that is produced is called beta-hydroxybutyrate. That's the main end product. Uh, and that is like this amazing super molecule in the body. It, it, the brain prefers it. Your brain will perform better with it. It, it, um, it's, it's, uh, it's more, it burns more efficiently. It produces less waste, so you have less associated inflammation. Um, and it has all these other signaling properties, just like another hormone, that actually optimize uh, our, our health and our, and our body function. It works right at the mitochondrial level. So it works right down at the, the basic engine of our cells. And, and it gives that, it's kind of like, um, in a way, you could think of it kind of like, you know, glu- like, a, like a hybrid car. So you've got, you know, gasoline power, which is, you know, produces power, but it's kind of polluting. And then you've got this electric power, which is much cleaner. And, and, and so kind of think of it that way. So you've got the glucose, which you, we could use, but it, it, it causes damage when you do that. You know, it kind of wears down the engine and, and it causes a lot of pollution, whereas the electric fuel, which would be the ketones, is really clean burning and, and really more efficient, more effective, produces more power at less cost. So, so there are many, many benefits to, um, we, could talk, <laughs> we could talk all day about the benefits of beta-hydroxybutyrate. Um, but if you really want the benefits of that, you have to have a very, very low carbohydrate diet, which means you have to, increase your fat to probably more than 60 or even 70% of your diet. And that's what a lot of people have a hard time with. And that's what it's great, uh, you know, the fat bomb episode and so on, just uh, helping people find ways to get more fat in the diet. I find, I I don't know about you, Madeline, but I find that um, women have a hard time eating more fat, you know, no problem cutting the carbohydrates out. Uh, Women are very strong in that, but but they're just so reluctant to add fat in. And, and, you know, it's, that's the, one of the challenges I find. Yeah, I've worked with a lot of women who are just starting to change their diet. And most women, um, 
will come to me because they want to lose stubborn fat. But then we find there's all these other health problems that they're dealing with too. But it seems like for most women, their motivation, if they're going to go see um, you know, someone about nutrition or go to a nutrition class is usually to lose some stubborn fat. And when I look at these people's food journals, I almost always see that they hardly eat anything. Um, and these are usually women between the age of, I'm going to just guess, 40 and 60, who I tend to see a lot of. But they're hardly eating anything, and it might look a little bit something like this. For breakfast, they'll have some coffee with a little bit of cream and a slice of toast with either nothing on it or some sort of low-fat spread and maybe a piece of fruit. And then for lunch, it might be a small salad without any dressing and either just a little bit of meat or no meat. So it's just mostly some pieces of lettuce. And then for dinner, it's usually something that's more out of control. Like suddenly they've gotten into the pasta or the pizza or McDonald's and then snacking into late into the night. Mm -hmm. Do you ever see people's food history like that? <laughs> I'd say it's classic. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, then they'll say, well, I'll have the cheesecake for dessert, but I'll, I'll have a diet Coke with it. And that's balance. Right. So. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And, um, when we start to change our diets, I notice that it's really difficult for them to buy into increasing the fats and the proteins and letting go of some of the carbs. Letting go of the carbs might be easier in their mind, but once they see, oh, I actually have to eat this fatty food, like an avocado or whatever it is, mm -hmm. instead of this piece of bread, I can see it's a, it's a jump for people to be comfortable with that switch. Yeah, and that's why in, in bio diet, you know, we, we talk about easing into it and sort of it's not just the eating part of it, but it's the psychology of eating, the culture of eating, even when, when you eat, where you shop, where you prepare your food. A lot of great information on your podcast about that because it is a lifestyle change. It's not a ketogenic diet is not intended to be a short term calorie restricted diet. It's a lifestyle change. So it involves much more than just what you eat. But of course, what you eat is, is key there. And, and yeah, I think people are, you know, that's why these observational studies that we based a lot of the prior um, incorrect information on, people are really bad at reporting what they eat. They, they under-report stuff. They're, people have bad impulse, impulse control over foods. Um, and so, you know, I don't put really any faith in it. You have to do kind of controlled studies, which are very expensive. Our, our, our studies are completely controlled, but they're, they're really expensive because you have to feed everybody everything they're eating for, you know, mm -hmm. months. That's, that's pricey. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's really um, important that people have the right, um, that they're prepared uh, and that they're committed. And so that's why, you know, we have a 12 week program that's pretty standard because you go for a few months and that 12 weeks is not just for the metabolic change that occurs because that can occur within a few weeks, but it's also to help you develop those healthy lifestyle habits that are very supportive that allow you to sustain the diet. So, so one of the things we do is, is talk about, you know, why we talked a little bit about why we got in the mess we're in now, but why ketogenic diets can turn that around. And that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. I talk about something called the axis of illness. Mm -hmm. And I think if people are aware of that, if you talk to any physicians about chronic disease, so we're talking about cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, these are metabolic disorders. And talk to any physician and you say, well, what's causing, what's underpinning all of those things? And they're actually, I think they're just different manifestations of the same disease. And the problem is, you have uh, obesity, insulin resistance, and uh, inflammation. 
And if you look at the research, you talk to your physician, you look in the medical books, about 70% of chronic disease is, is related to obesity. About 70% is caused or aggravated by insulin resistance. About 70% is caused or aggravated by inflammation. So that's why I say, you know, arguably, if you can address all of those, um, uh, then you can, you can really address chronic disease. So the thing is, those three things, if you think of like a triangle with insulin resistance, you know, inflammation, obesity, um, they all make each other worse. So once you start that vicious cycle, uh, and it's excess carbohydrate that starts that. It starts the insulin resistance. It starts the obesity. Um, and it, it's inflammatory. Um, and uh, then they all make each other worse. And then eventually that manifests itself as some kind of disease. It's a diagnosable thing that they then treat with drugs or surgery or whatever they do. Uh, but the great news is, you know, if you just pull the carbohydrate out of that model, that resolves. So how do people know? You know, you know if you're obese or not. You can stand in the mirror and look at yourself or weigh yourself. How do you know if you're inflamed? Well, usually, you know, you talked about women that are 40 to 60, they'll complain of aches and pains and, and you know, stiffness and not able to move as much. And that, so that is in your joints. That's, info, that's chronic systemic inflammation in your joints. But that's also happening elsewhere in your organs, and especially in your blood vessels. And we now know that what causes cardiovascular disease is not excessive fat or cholesterol in the diet. It's inflammation in the arteries. And it's sugar, high-carb diet, um, and insulin resistance and so on that, that lead to that inflammation. How do you know if you're insulin resistant? Well, for the, you know, one of the ways you can tell is in the brain because you don't need insulin in the brain to get the sugar into the cells, but you do need insulin to make those cells uh, operate properly. And if they're not operating properly, you'll get a little bit of memory issues, you get brain fog, you get that sort of thing. So, so if you start noticing that, and a lot of women 40 to 60 you know, are starting to complain about fuzzy brain and brain fog and that sort of thing, that's a sign that you're becoming insulin resistant too. So all of those things, you know, people, people think about their weight and let's face it, people come to ketogenic diets for weight loss, but really that's just one sign that there's a whole, you know, vicious circle going on inside your body that you need to address because it will manifest itself as some kind of chronic disease eventually. And the good news is we can fix, we can reverse that and quickly too. Do you ever suggest that people get their fasting insulin level done? Oh, yeah, you can, you can do that. Um, uh, it's a HOMA test for insulin um, and, and actually for insulin resistance. Um, and there's actually now some, some uh, kits coming along that will allow you to wow. test your insulin, even in your saliva and so on. Um, they're just, uh, you know, these startup companies are starting to produce that. Um, okay. Yeah, it's, you know, one of the things I do emphasize in the book is do this with your physician. Uh, you know, especially if you do have chronic disease or you're taking any medication, they really need to be part of the team. And if you have a physician that just says, well, I think ketogenic diets are fads or they're crazy or I don't know anything about them, well, <laughs> you can hand them my book <laughs> and have them read it. Uh, or just say, listen, you know, you know, get a second opinion or something like that because um, I'm part of a group of the Canadian Clinicians for Therapeutic Nutrition here in Canada. There's more than 6,000 physicians and researchers and so on, mostly physicians that are supporting uh, high-fat, low-carb diets. And so things are coming around now, and I think, um, you know, it's a sign that your physician may be a little behind the times if they haven't recognized the therapeutic benefits there. Yeah. Um, I have a number of clients who have gone to their physician to ask for a fasting insulin level, and they won't let them. They actually right. say, no, we're not doing that. So um, sometimes that might be a sign that you need a different doctor if, if you are going to be working with your physician on a keto diet. Would, would you agree with that? 
Yeah, and, and you know, here in Canada, we have socialized medicine, so it's really it's kind of triage. So basically, if there if there's a reason for it, they'll do it. Um, okay. So you can ask them if they have a reason for it. If your blood sugar is too high, you can you can ask them to do that. And good thing is we don't have to pay for that here. If that's the case. Oh, that's uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, but you can, you can get it done privately. I don't know what they cost, but it's uh, I think it's probably like it's only about thirty or forty dollars to get an insulin. And mm-hmm. you know, the other one I I, I think is worth uh, looking into is a, is a DEXA uh, before. One of the, one of the, the first uh, chapters in part two, which tells you how to adopt a ketogenic diet, uh, we've talked about the measurements to be made. And one of them is DEXA, which, which is um, a lot of women have had that for bone density, but it'll also tell you your fat composition, where that fat is. So that's another good one to do. Like um, where the fat is in your body? Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. So mid-abdominal fat is the most um, health dangerous kind of fat. So if that's where it is, you know, then you can, and the good thing about the keto diets is they, they tend to reduce the fat in that area too. Sure. Sure. Um, so yeah, getting, I, you know, not, not just that, but getting the full lipid panel done, getting your, you know, your, your liver function, all your liver enzymes, your kidney function tests. I recommend when, before people start that, they talk to their physician, they get all that they can get measured, measured, you know, whatever their uh, insurance will pay for, whatever they're willing to pay for. And then do that again at the end of the 12 weeks. And, and then you'll know for sure whether it's working for you or not. Um, and, it, and yeah. you know, ketogenic diets are not for everyone. Um, I think given the rate of obesity and overweight and diabetes, you know, probably seven out of eight people could benefit. But for those other one out of eight, um, it might not work for them or it might not be appropriate or, you know, there are some conditions for which ketogenic diets are contraindicated. Um, and they should be aware of that too. And really only your physician can, can tell you about that. So like what kinds of people shouldn't be doing a ketogenic diet? Um, well, you know, there are these really rare enzymatic disorders, you know, carnitine deficiency, uh, disorders, um, porphyria. There's a, there's a number of, uh, people with the APOA4E gene, um, people on SLGT2, uh, for diabetes. Um, so these are, these are contraindications, which, in the, which would say this has to change or you can't adopt a ketogenic diet. It's basically because they have an inability to metabolize fat or the ketones that are produced. Uh, but that's that's pretty rare. Um, and then there's people that have had kidney or uh, liver, uh, maybe hepatitis, or they've had kidney problems um, because of the metabolic change that occurs, uh, this temporary stress on those organs, and, and that may not be wise. Um, you know, women that are pregnant, that's not the best time to start a ketogenic diet um, because you're releasing a lot of uh, fat on a ketogenic diet, and that fat is where a lot of toxins are stored, environmental toxins, and you don't want those in your system when you're pregnant. Um, so they're all listed in, in the book there. They're sort of like the ones you absolutely shouldn't be on a keto diet, which are very rare. And then the ones for which you would need physician oversight. Um, um, but I think everybody should first talk to their physician. I also think everybody should make sure they have a, you know, someone like yourself that actually knows that, that they're working with a qualified nu- nutrition or, or dietitian, nutritionist or dietitian, um, and make it a team effort, you know, to say, okay, well, I've got, you know, because... Physicians don't know anything about nutrition. They get between five and eight hours of training during medical school. So they don't know. So they have to depend on nutritionists and dietitians. And many of them are either old school and don't think ketogenic diets are fads or whatever. Or they, or, uh, so you need to get a really strong team behind you, and that, that team will help support you. And that's also part of what makes it sustainable, too, and successful. Can you talk a little bit about diabetics? And um, I'm talking about type 1 and 2, and if you can explain type 3 diabetes to us as well, and how bio diet or keto diet might fit into those people's lifestyle right well diabetes is really a spectrum these days it's it's not you know generally type 1 is insulin dependent so these are people that have probably had an immune reaction to the beta cells in their pancreas that produce the insulin so they can't produce insulin and you need to produce insulin in order to get you know you do need a certain amount of glucose for your brain and your other tissues to to perform 
um, optimally. Um, type two is due to insulin resistance. So you're producing insulin, but your cells are no longer responding to it. So it's kind of like, um, you know, when you're, you have an aging grandparent that's, that's going deaf, you know, and every time you go to their house, their TV is a little bit louder. So, so what's happening is that, you know, they're going deaf because of the loud sound. And so because they're going deaf, they turn the sound up even louder and that makes them go deaf even more and it just gets louder and louder. Same thing kind of happens with insulin is you, you secrete excessive amounts of insulin, which you do on a high carb diet. Uh, and so your cells over, not, not quickly, but over years or even de a decade or so, they start to become resistant to that signal, deaf to that signal. So then the signal has to be increased. So you produce more insulin and then that makes it even worse. And so again, you get this sort of vicious cycle that works itself up to the point you can't control your blood sugar. And then they say you have type 2 diabetes. You're now insulin resistant. Um, type 3 diabetes was a, a term coined by uh, Suzanne Delamonte at Brown University uh, to, talk, to describe Alzheimer's disease as um, diabetes of the brain, essentially an insulin-resistant brain. And so when the brain stops losing its ability to, um, to respond to the insulin signal, it stops functioning properly, and you get a lot of inflammation as a part of that process too. And, and uh, Alzheimer's is absolutely inflammatory. So... So the way a ketogenic diet works on all of those is if we go backwards, the type three, it provides this alternate fuel, which your brain prefers, the beta-hydroxybutyrate, and, and it'll just function much better on that. And, and there are some that are much smarter and more qualified than I that have said that, you know, effectively you, you won't get Alzheimer's on, on a ketogenic diet. That's an interesting statement. Um, uh, it, it has been shown by my friend, Dr. Stephen Kunane at the University of Sherbrooke that adding ketones exogenously, so an MCT oil, can actually help improve the brain function of people with mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's. Um, if we look at the type uh, two diabetes, the insulin resistance, um, the folks at Verta Health, uh, which is uh, uh, my friend and colleague, um, Jeff Bullock and, and Steve Finney, um, they have, uh, it's out of San Francisco and they do sort of online uh, coaching for uh, low carb ketogenic diets for people with type two diabetes. They have some great data going out two years now to show that you know three out of five people uh, on a ketogenic diet have actually reversed their type 2 diabetes. And there's no drugs that do that. So that means they don't take any medication or, or maybe just metformin, but they're able to control uh, their um, blood sugar without the help of insulin or other drugs. Uh, and about 90 plus percent of those that going out two years don't need to take less medication. So, so that's really, really good scientific validated uh, proof that, that a ketogenic diet is effective for type 2. Type 1 is a bit trickier because, you know, you, one of the dangers in type one is that your blood sugar goes too low and on ketogenic diets, you know, your blood sugar tends to be low normal. So what it, what it hopefully means if it's managed well is that you don't need to take as much insulin, which of course um, you want to take as little as possible because of the you know, potential effects we talked about earlier. Um, but, but you have to monitor it very closely so you don't become hypoglycemic, which can be dangerous. And that's why, especially if you're type one, you really need to work with your physician on that. But yes, uh, it has been shown to be effective in all three. For type one diabetes, um, how would their blood sugar get too low? Would it just be because they took too much insulin? Yeah, typically they take too much insulin. So, so you will, um, you know, in the absence of carbohydrate in your diet, your, your liver and your kidneys to some degree produce all the glucose that you need. Uh, the process is called gluconeogenesis, which literally means, you know, making new glucose. Uh, and you make it from non-sugar, non-carbohydrate sources. So uh, lactic acid, um, uh, amino acids, and then the glycerol part of the fat uh, and other compounds can be turned into glucose. And then that supplies the brain and the red blood cells and so on with the glucose it needs and your other cells. Um, so, so that's an ongoing process. Now, if you're, if you, 
you, if you're type one diabetic, you will need to take insulin to get that blood sugar into those cells, especially the muscles and fat cells and so on. Um, but the, what a ketogenic diet would allow you to do is do the same with less added um, insulin because you're not having that increased uh, load. So what happens with, with a lot of type one diabetics is they'll eat, you know, um, uh, they'll eat a, let's say they're, you know, top of the line, six, six millimole of, of glucose. Um, and, and they'll eat a, like a pasta dinner or something like that. So then they'll, they'll inject some insulin because their blood sugar goes up to like 20, mm -hmm. but because they have to inject so much insulin to get their blood sugar back, sometimes that insulin kind of overdoes it and then their blood sugar drops too low. Now, now for you and I, if we don't have type one diabetes, we would probably view that as that 10, 11 o'clock, I need a muffin. You know, if you're a high carb eater, you just sort of, you feel low because the insulin that you excrete in the morning is now over absorb the blood glucose so you know low blood sugar you get hungry maybe get a bit hangry you know and then so you eat a muffin or some carby thing to get back there till lunchtime but um sure. so, so what it, so what's great about ketogenic diets again we have really good uh, research for this is it moderates the blood sugar levels and it moderates the insulin levels so so i would just argue it's probably much more easy for type 1 di diabetics to manage uh, but because of the risk of hypoglycemia it's it's, it's very important that they uh, they have physician oversight so if a type 1 diabetic is normally eating a lot of carbs and then they want to move on to a low-carb or a keto diet, they would just have to really monitor their insulin and blood sugar levels and start making a lot of changes probably with the amount of insulin they're taking. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And that, you know, there's a transition period that we know about, you know, this is where you sort of get the keto flu and that's the most important part. You know, after a few weeks, they'll, they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll have it sorted out to a new level and, and they'll be spending less money on insulin and, and more on good fatty foods. Yeah, that's great. I want to switch modes just a little bit because we have never talked about AGEs on this podcast. Right. And I think this is such a cool topic. Can you just tell us what are AGEs and how does that even relate to keto? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not talked about much. So that's why we decided to include it in the book. Um, so AGE, you know, it spells age, obviously. Uh, but it's an acronym for uh, advanced glycated end products or advanced glycated entities. And uh, these are essentially mostly proteins, um, but also some fats that are in your cells and, and outside of your cells. And when you have, they, as you age, they get glycated. So the glycated uh, is sugar, glyco, like glycogen or, or you know, glucose, same sort of thing. So if these are your you know, proteins, the, the sugars just kind of start sticking to them and they make these sort of cross bridges and it kind of just gums up the works. If they're, if they're an enzyme, the enzyme doesn't function well. If they're, if they're structural, um, a good example of that is, is, is collagen. So, so collagen is a protein that's in our skin, for example. So if you do a little pinch test on, you know, you pinch your skin and then you watch it snap back. Um, you know, if you do that with a, with a kid or a baby, it's just like it's so elastic. Um, as you age, you know, if you do that, it kind of stays that way. What's happening is these, these cross bridges are, are sort of making that, um, it's like a rubber band that gets old. They get stiffer and they get um, less less elastic. So that's what's happening in your in your skin. But that same thing is happening all throughout your body and all throughout your cells. Is is these excess glucose is now sticking to places where it shouldn't be. And so these are these advanced glycated entities, these these proteins and fats that have excess sugar on them. And and then you add an R in front of that, you get Rage, which are the receptors for AGEs. And those receptors for AGEs are super highly inflammatory. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, that's one of the core three elements of the insulin resistance, obesity, and inflammation. Uh, and that inflammation, we now actually kind of jokingly call it inflammaging because mm -hmm. it is, uh, it, it turns out, in, it, to me, aging is really 
a combination of, of, of insulin resistance and inflammation causing uh, damage to your, to your cells and to your body. And um, so that's why these AGEs, this excessive carbohydrate, can contribute to aging. Again, the good news is on a ketogenic diet, you can reverse that. You can, uh, those, those things are, are regenerated and you can reduce the amount of, of, uh, of, of rage and reduce the amount of inflammaging. And, and uh, we've even seen, you know, not in humans, but uh, when you have high ketone levels, we've seen the um, preservation of what we call the telomeres on the end of chromosomes. Um, and as you, they're kind of like those little plastic things on the end of your laces and your shoes. And those things, as you get older, they kind of start fraying. And when the chromosomes start fraying, that's really you know, pro-aging. Um, so uh, what we've seen is there's an enzyme called telomerase, which helps perverse, uh, preserve that and increase levels of telomerase in people that are keto-adapted. So it's preserving those, um, those little uh, plastic ends on the chromosomes and, and at the same time reducing the inflammation systemically. So, so you, if you look at the, we call them the biomarkers, what we can measure in people. So you have a, you have a, a chronological age. Uh, yours obviously much shorter than mine because uh, you know I'm a lot older than you are. But we also have a biological age, which you can kind of measure based on what's going on in your blood and your body and so on, how you're functioning. And uh, you know, just ballpark figures. Generally, you know, in that 12 weeks that we run people through um, adaptation to a ketogenic diet, you'll see that that biological age uh, reduced by about 10 years. So it's kind of like you're taking 10 years off your age. Uh, and that's why, you know, at the end of it, people feel great. 100% of the people I've counseled, I'm sure you too, whether they've had success with weight loss or anything else, they'll all say, you know what, I just feel great. I just feel better. And that's part of that, you know, taking that cotton wool out of their brain, taking the, you know, getting the ketones in their brains, so their brain's uh, functioning. Um, their mood will improve, their sleep improves. Um, so there are many, many benefits. A lot of it is due to this beta-hydroxybutyrate, the main ketone that's produced. That's so interesting. Very cool. And then one more time, I'm just going to switch modes again. Sure, I love it. I was really excited to see this topic. It was a little snippet in your book towards the beginning about resistant starch. Yeah. And yeah. resistant starch is something that I have been a little bit confused on. Um, I've heard a lot about it. I don't know exactly what it is or how it works, but can you just tell us more about that and how it fits into the bio diet at all? Right. Um, well, I might be dating myself talking about like Tinker Toys. Do you remember Tinker Toys, mm -hmm. those little sticks and things? Okay. So, yeah. um, so I think a lot of people just don't know what carbohydrates are, frankly. They don't really understand. So, um, you know, there's, there's three main forms of carbohydrate. There's sugars, which are simple. They're glucoses or glucose, fructose, or galactose, and they're joined together in ones or twos, and they taste sweet. Uh, but then when you make those into bigger chains, they become um, polysaccharides or complex carbohydrates, which in plants we call starch. In animals, we call it glycogen. But that's really just a whole bunch of these same tinker toys. It's the glucose molecules just stuck together in, in groups of hundreds and thousands, these very complex things. So, so that's, what, um, that's kind of what starch is. Um, and then the third uh, category is, is the fiber. And, and the fiber is, doesn't provide um, uh, calories as such. Um, and there's the, there's the soluble type, which we can talk about in a sec, and then the insoluble, which is basically bulk in the, in the feces. Um, so this, the, so the starch part of it, so you, you, you probably know about, you know, in, in your saliva and from your pancreas, you secrete amylase. It's the same. So this is the enzyme that digests starch, but there's a, a type of, um, complex carbohydrate called amylose, and that's called a resistant starch. And the reason is rather than this really complex tinker toy thing with hundreds of they, they all stack up like cordwood like that. So they're really tightly packed together. And so the normal enzyme process can't really digest those very well. So they pass through the upper part of the intestine, the small intestine. 
and they end up in the large intestine. Now there, we have bacteria there that are, will happily slowly digest that. But when they do, rather than releasing the free glucose as you would with starch, so this is one of the things I think people don't realize is, you know, when you eat starch, you're really eating sugar, right? Mm -hmm. it, it becomes sugar in your blood. Well, this doesn't become sugar in your blood because it's not digested by us, it's digested by the bacteria. And what they produce are what are called short chain fatty acids. And the main one they produce is something called butyrate. And butyrate is absorbed into the colonocytes, the cells that line the colon. Um, and that butyrate is turned into hydroxybutyrate, which is the main ketone. So they're actually, what you're doing by eating resistant starch, it's hard to get that on its own because it's a component of other things. Um, but the resistant starch itself turns into short chain fatty acids, which are absorbed and then turned into ketones. So you're actually providing the ketones right to the colonocytes, which helps them stay healthy too. Uh, and then that can be absorbed into the body as well because the, the ketones just go down their concentration gradient wherever they need to go. So that's what resistant starch is. Um, and um, you get a similar sort of thing happening with, with soluble fiber too. The soluble fiber, uh, again, gets down to your um, large intestine where it's, where it's uh, digested and again into short chain fatty acids that are turned into butyrate. So, so that's why we like um, to get, you can get soluble fiber without getting you know, the starch that goes with it. Um, and there's good sort of things like, you know, hemp hearts and, and uh, chia seeds and psyllium husk and, and just all the vegetables that you eat are going to have soluble fiber. Um, but you can get it without the sugar, without the starch. And if you can, that's really beneficial to your, to your gut and will help prevent uh, colon cancer and, and also provide some beneficial ketones. So what are some food examples of resistant starch? Well, there's different types of, there's like, a, like one of them's um, artificial. So there's like three different types of resistant starch. Uh, some of it is already bound up in the cell walls of, of plant material. So that's kind of tricky to, you know, get, you'll get some of that with your crunchy vegetables and, you know, your cruciferous vegetables and so on. Um, and then there are some things, you know, like cashews, for instance, have a fair amount of it, but they also have a fair amount of carbohydrates. So, mm -hmm. you know, I eat a lot of nuts, but I'm easy on the cashews because of the high carbohydrate load. Um, so it's hard to really get just the um, resistant starch but okay. um, nuts have nuts tend to have a lot of it um, and I eat a lot of nuts which is maybe why people think I'm a little nutty. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard from people that they say um, foods that you wouldn't normally eat like white potatoes or white rice or uh, plantains when they're cold like they're right. cooked and then they're cold that's yes. considered resistant starch. I've never understood that. Well, it's just, a, yeah. So, okay, so think about a potato. If you eat a raw potato, which you shouldn't eat, really. But if you eat a raw potato, it doesn't taste very sweet. But if you, or a carrot, for, for that matter. If you uh, cook it, it sweetens. Because what you're doing is breaking off, you're breaking all those tinker toy things up into smaller pieces. Sure. And then when it cools, like potatoes are a good example of creating resistant starch. When it cools, it doesn't link together in those giant tinker toys. It starts to pile up like cordwood. So you actually do produce um, more resistant starch when you heat vegetables and then cool them down again. And potatoes is a good example. Okay. Um, but unfortunately, there's, you know, the percentage of, of the resistant starch compared to the other starch in the potatoes would, would be very small. So you, 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 there's, no way you could eat, you, there's no way you could benefit from the resistant starch without getting a ton of carbohydrate there as well. So, okay. So it's, it's, but it does increase the amount of it for sure. Okay. So it may not be the best pairing if you're trying to work on ketosis. Right. But if you're, you know, if you're vegan or you're choosing another lifestyle and you want to increase your, that's a great way to do it is just to eat the vegetables up and then cool them down again. Sure. Okay. Well, before we wrap up today, I'm just curious, is there anything else that you would just like to share or tell us about today? 
Well, I mean, I, I'm sort of, you know, like you, I'm on a mission to try and help people understand how, um, how low-carbon ketogenic diets and, and how diet in particular can, can help people uh, prevent chronic disease and, and uh, maybe treat chronic disease. Um, I think the last message would just be for everybody to keep an open mind, to always uh, question the conventional wisdom because that's changing, but it changes slowly. So we have a phrase in science that uh, science progresses one funeral at a time. So... There are a lot of people who have, are heavily vested in this low-fat world. A lot of it is the processed food industry, and they will be advertising, and they'll have people going out on speaking tours. There are scientists that will tell you that, you know, you and I are crazy, and we don't know what we're talking about. Um, use your own critical reasoning, uh, is what I'd ask them, and, and uh, keep an open mind. And I think if they look at the evidence, they will see that there is huge benefit to uh, considering a ketogenic diet. And so if they'd like to do that, I hope that BioDiet provides a, a, a good source of information for them. I hope their physician will be on board. Uh, we also have a, a website for the book. It's called BioDiet.org. Um, and if you just send a note to info at BioDiet.org, you can reach me by email. Um, and uh, in there, we've actually taken a lot of the extra stuff like the, the diagrams and the pull quotes and that, and they're all available as resources uh, for your listeners as well if they want to go and check that out. And, you know, if they like to look at the book, they can go ahead and order straight away from the website too. It'll take them to their favorite online, you know, bookstore. Um, so it's great to be on this voyage. You know, I have to say that I just meet the greatest people. You're one of them too. You're now my new friend. <laughs> but it is, we are, we are like a, we're like a family that um, really cares about people and cares about health and wants people to to optimize their health and so it's a pleasure to be on that voyage with you Madeline and uh and I hope we can continue to do this I hope to have a podcast interview on someday oh great yeah, yeah I would just love that yeah. so where can people find you you gave your website but yep. are you on social media too yeah it's, yeah um the hashtag is uh, hashtag bio diet book okay um and uh bio diet on on uh Facebook works as well and then uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I think I'm David G. Harper on LinkedIn or maybe Dr. David G. Harper. But uh, yeah, I've got lots of friends there. Um, so come and find us on social media. And uh, again, if you do happen to pick up the book uh, and you have any questions, you can send that along. And if you like it and you, you'd be, uh, be so kind as to provide a review, it's kind of like the podcast reviews. They really make a big difference to people like you and I mm -hmm. in terms of getting uh, getting attention. So if, if, you're, if you're joining us in the cause of trying to, help people find optimal health. That really helps us. Well, thank you, David. It was such a pleasure Thanks, having Helen. you on the show today. Wonderful. It was always a pleasure to be here.